When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Spiked is looking for interns. We need people to help us to make our fresh, hard-hitting journalism that will reach audiences around the world. If you're an aspiring writer, editor, video maker, podcast producer, then this is the opportunity for you. So you have until the 16th of June to apply. And if you're successful, you'll be joining us here in our London offices for six months paid. Find out more about the scheme and how to apply by going to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Best of luck. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And down the line from Luton, we're delighted to have Spiked columnist, Rakib Essam. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the arrest of anti-monarchy protesters, the fallout from the local elections and the Archbishop of Canterbury's meddling in migration policy. So um, ahead of the coronation this weekend, Tom, there were six anti-monarchy protesters arrested. Um, they weren't even able to start their demonstration. There's been a lot of condemnation um, of the police for this. People have rightly said this is a very authoritarian act. The police themselves have since apologised. They had these powers under the Public Order Act, which had only just recently um, come in. First of all, what do you make of the arrests? I mean, it was quite chilling, really. Yes, I mean, it was from the moment that I heard that um, Graham Smith, the CEO of Republic, the mm. Republican campaign group, and five of his colleagues have been arrested, I naturally assumed that this was as fishy as it looked because of the fact that, you know, if you're talking about Republican protesters, this is a very moderate sort of type of group. This yeah. is not a kind of Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion type front. There mm. are a fair number of Just Stop Oil protesters who are also arrested but um that instantly didn't really necessarily sit right you then start to see some of the details coming out particularly centering around the allegation that they had locking on devices this is something that was specifically criminalized by this new public order mm. act um insofar as you know things people used to chain themselves to public infrastructure or whatever to bring things to a standstill and instantly people from republic saying no this is just what our banners were wrapped in it yeah. didn't seem to make much sense so from the off, it, it was it was very, very suspicious. Um, and then they confirmed those suspicions, you know, not that long later when they effectively apologised that it was a lapse in judgment. Um, but I think it just speaks to how broad the police powers currently are, how concerning that should be, um, but also how um, difficult I think it is to argue against these particular measures because of the fact that whilst um, there has been this creep of authoritarianism in relation to protest it's always been pretty bad but it's certainly gotten worse in recent years because of the couple of Tory pieces of legislation on the bounce but also because when people who agree with Republic or who yeah. are concerned about people on the left of politics being censored complain about this as they did very vocally over the course of the weekend there's a lot of people who just dismiss that as them defending people they agree with because yeah. that's the only thing they ever do um, so I think in and of itself what happened was chilling but mm. I wasn't that surprised by it 
it was also the response to it, I think, which felt so lacking because of the fact that these people only ever really defend freedom for those people that they agree with, essentially. Yeah, Rakeem, I mean, you, you'd get the impression on Twitter or, you know, reading some of the newspapers that this was the first time anyone's been arrested for um, having a contrary opinion, which is obviously not the case in Britain, you know, especially over the past couple of years. No, absolutely. And I think Tom touches on a very important point that people are extremely selective when it comes to people's freedom of protest. It's no secret that I'm overall very pro-monarchy. I thought that the coronation was a glorious celebration of the country's Christian heritage and also our proud contemporary status as a confident multi-faith democracy. But I found it very worrying to see the level of uh, police authoritarianism. Uh, People are absolutely within their right to hold demonstrations, uh, anti-monarchy demonstrations, making the case for secular republicanism in modern day Britain uh, through protests. Uh, And and I think if truth be told, the the Met continues to embarrass itself. Mm. Uh, That's the truth of it. And I think there needs to be now a broader debate on how the police, especially the Met in London, abuses its powers. And I think what's really interesting uh, that the, there's a story that's emerged where a, a young lady who in, who is very pro monarchy yeah. enjoys royal occasions. She got caught up in all of this. She mm-hmm. got arrested, and she was actually held by the police for the entire day. And I think that's absolutely remarkable. I think that we need to have a very serious conversation about policing activities in London, which I consider to be a fundamental abuse of their powers. Yeah, and Tom, I mean, obviously the law allows the police to do this, and that's why there's a problem with the law. Mm -hmm. But conversely, you know, we have seen one of the reasons why the government feels the need to bring in this law is because on some demonstrations, the police haven't used their powers Mm -hmm. to take some of the Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil or Insulate Britain protests. You know, a lot of people have been asking, well, why, when people are causing disruption, do the police seem to side with the protests? Mm -hmm. No, it's a a confusing one, not least because of the fact that the sorts of things that just a boiler extinction rebellion have been getting up to. It's hard to believe that this stuff hasn't been criminalised already. That if yeah. you're, you know, gluing yourself to trains or lying down in the road, that that's not something that can be dealt with in quicker than ten hours. As always seems to be the case. Um, I think the problem is, is that um, first of all, that you do have these very expansive powers. Mm. You kind of handed them a blank check to police protest in recent years, and that's a power that can be very readily abused, as we've as we've seen in this instance. I think the other issue is that. In some way, shape or form, I think the police now consider themselves to be in the public relations business. Yeah. Um, So whether or not it's um, in one instance kind of giving environmental protesters a bit of a soft touch because they're potentially worried they're going to get, you know, fury from certain sections of the liberal media for Mm -hmm. being too heavy handed on them. Or it's a big public occasion like a royal funeral or a coronation in which public emotion is particularly high. There's a kind of sense that we don't want these people to ruin the festivities. And therefore, you see that kind of overreaction in that particular domain as well. It wouldn't surprise me if that's part of what's motoring this as well. The, The fundamental problem you get down to is the fact that they have these powers and this kind of wide latitude to begin with. Um, and even though, as I say, I'm in a sort of slightly curious position because of the fact that I wrote an article criticising Republic the day of the coronation from a Republican perspective, very, yeah. very naff and virtue singly and, you know, not my king. It's a very narcissistic kind of way of doing things. But at the mm. same time, it being so abundantly clear that these clampdowns were completely atrocious. The problem is we get back to is the fact that, like, how do you mount a proper 
um, response to this, which doesn't just feel like two sides of the culture war going at it and calling yeah. the other ones authoritarian. Um, and that's a real question that the James O'Briens or the Owen Joneses of this world really have to answer is the fact that even if we're just talking about protests, they've been remarkably silent in recent years when it came down to the COVID restrictions yeah. on protests. That was an outrageous thing to happen, particularly in the context of unprecedented restrictions on our everyday lives. People should be able to voice their opposition to that incredibly sweeping powers to stop protests and also to issue exorbitant fines for those who broke those particular rules. But then, of course, as we've already gestured to, you don't even need to take to the streets with a loud hailer yeah. to be considered offensive and upsetting and want to be arrested by the police. You know, it's over the course of recent years, you're talking about thousands of people who have been had their collars felt for posting offensive things on the internet. Um, people have been hauled through the courts mm. for that. Um, people have been convicted for these particular offences. And yet these sort of Johnny-come-lately defenders of freedom in the United Kingdom were conspicuous by their absence during all of that. And I think that inability to stick up for the speech rights and the right to protest of people, even if you disagree with them, is the Achilles heel in all of this. We're never going to have a proper sort of free speech fight back, if you like, until at least a sort of critical mass of people involved in politics recognise that you have to defend it for all or for none at all, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible that, you know, many of the people who are suddenly, you know, brandishing their John Stuart Mill um, over the weekend were denying that there was a problem at all. It's not just that they turned a blind mm. eye. They actively rubbished the idea that there was a free speech crisis in Britain. And often, you know, when it came to particular cases, like the anti-lockdown protests, for instance, they were very supportive of those restrictions on protest. They, they all absolutely support hate speech laws, um, you know, which have led to those thousands of arrests mm. you're talking about for people being offensive online. So it is... A really, really, you know, the hypocrisy is extraordinary and it's a case of me speech, not free mm. speech. And unfortunately, everyone can kind of see through that. So it doesn't, you know, advance the argument any further. Rakeem, you got anything to add on, on this? No, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's such a shame that people are so inconsistent when it comes to upholding free speech in uh, British liberal democracy. I think that there has to be a greater level of consistency. And I think the, the, at, the, at the heart of that, has to be defending the right of people to express their views, and that includes uh, participating in protests and demonstrations, even if the views that they're promoting are diametrically opposed to your own. So the Tories have taken an absolute pasting in the local elections. They've lost over a 1,000 seats, underperforming some of their worst expectations. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. But on the other hand, Labour maybe haven't done as well as they need to in order to win the next election. They've won um, just over 500 seats. So not they're certainly not gobbling up everything that the Tories have lost. Rakeem, what have you made of that? I mean, particularly in terms of Labour um, and where they need to be. Well, firstly, there's no way that you can spin uh, the reality that it was an absolutely disastrous um, performance provided by the Conservative Party to lose over 1,000 councillors and quite often it's your energetic councillors who are your foot soldiers, organisational foot soldiers when it comes to uh, general election campaigns. And, and I think the reality is when quite often when a councillor loses his or her seat, that kind of energy in terms of representing the party when it comes to general election time, it's not necessarily there mm. uh, when they've lost their seats so recently. But I think in terms of uh, Labour, I think Labour will be encouraged by the fact that 
it gained control and it wrestled control uh, from the Tories when it came to councils which are Brexit voting authorities, uh, especially in the provincial Midlands. I'm thinking of local authorities such as Amber Valley, uh, Erewash, both of those local authorities in Derbyshire. They had a very good performance in Broxtow in Nottinghamshire where they gained 12 councillors Labour, 10 were from the Tories, but also two from the Liberal Democrats, probably one of the most impressive performances uh, in, in the local elections. But I agree. I think that I think Sir Keir Starmer needs to leave the bubbly on ice. Uh, I think there was some uh, there's a great deal of triumphalism mm. uh, coming out of the Labour Party. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. I think there's a, a great deal of work that needs to be done by the party if it wants to secure a workable parliamentary majority. And I do think that we have to uh, entertain. Uh, the possibility of there perhaps being a Labour Liberal Democratic coalition, a Liberal Democrat coalition um, in the uh, following the next uh, general election. I think that's certainly a possibility. And we have to make the point, I think that the Greens, uh, they had a fantastic time of it. I think that if you see in recent local election cycles, they've been building on um, a series of impressive performances. And I'd actually say they were the biggest winners of these latest uh, local elections in England. And in terms of how the results are being spun, obviously, Rakeem, that you're absolutely right. There's no good way to spin it for the Tories. What an absolute disaster. Um, but Keir Starmer's line is not only, you know, essentially to say the election's in the bag, but also he seems to think that he's won the culture war. Mm -hmm. He had this interesting phrase. He said, um, the NHS trumps woke every day of the week, as if to imply, you know, the way the Tories are focusing on trans issues or migration mm -hmm. is a big turnoff for voters. Is that a fair assessment? Well, no, not at all. Not least because of the fact that um, the idea that Rishi Sunak was going up and down the country demanding to know of Labour councillors if they knew what a woman was. That's not how local elections work. It would be yeah. absurd if you tried to um, <laughs> mount a campaign on that particular basis. Um, he was literally photographed filling in potholes because that's mm. the, what we're dealing with when you're talking about local elections. But I think that comment in particular speaks to the sense of complacency um, the idea that he's neutralised the issues which were really dogging him for a very long time and, and will continue to, I dare say, despite um, his electoral prospects looking up at this particular juncture. And especially given the fact that, yes, it was a bad night for the Conservatives. It was, a, it was probably always going to be a bad night for the Conservatives. They've been in power for a very long time. Um, and they, did, they have had also their kind of most incredibly self-immolating year when they've gone through <laughs> three prime ministers and all sorts of different things. Um, it's worth, of course, remembering that they have squandered the opportunities that was presented to them by 2019 and Brexit as evidenced by those um, Leave voters going back to Labour potentially, not because I think they've you know changed their minds on that particular issue, but it feels like a dead issue, not least because of how much mm. the... Tories have completely screwed it up. And they've allowed it to be buried as well. You know? Exactly. Um, and, and and that's something which I think will be one to watch. Um, I think the problem for Starmer is that he's, it's that kind of sense of complacency mm. because um, what, at the current state of play, it's quite clear that whilst people are running away from the Conservatives, or at least a certain number of voters are, they're not necessarily running headlong, excitedly towards Keir Starmer. Mm. He's not someone who sets pulses racing. It was interesting to hear him talk about the NHS Trump's woke every time. I mean, what is his plan for the NHS or anything else yeah. for that matter? I mean, in recent days, it seems that his main policy is to say that he's going to look at what Tories have done and uh, maybe change it or not. I mean, he's still kind of dodging <laughs> a lot of those particular issues. 
And also the complacency on the cultural war, I think, is important to talk about because of the fact that you have this very deadening discussion, which is to say, well, actually, the number one issue for people is the cost of living. Of course it is. It would yeah. be insane if it wasn't, given mm. how bad things are out there at the moment. People's bread and butter issues are always going to be front and centre in their minds. The thing about the cultural war and the reason it's so important is that it kind of underlines a lot of those um, other discussions. It kind of sits yeah. behind them in a weird sort of way. It's one of the ways in which in quite a profound way, there's been this kind of rupture between um, ordinary people and their elected representatives to the point where they feel that their leaders have completely strange, exotic, nonsensical worldviews around gender or anything else. It kind yeah. of expresses that chasm between ordinary people and the people vying for their particular attention. And all it would take is for a particular issue to polarise around those culture war issues, for it to be very troubling for Keir Starmer. So, of course, it's not no one was expecting um, the local elections to be fought on the issues of woke, but it is a running problem for the Labour Party insofar as they are considered on those culture war issues, which are very serious issues around women's rights, free speech, and all the rest of it, as somehow even more dreadful than the Tories. And that is something to, you know, <laughs> yeah, marvel at. Yeah, it's quite an incredible feat. Um, I mean, it was interesting. There was a sort of leaked... Um, note from Labour advisors saying that, you know, Keir could lose the ele next election on day one if he's still being asked what a woman is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's it's amazing, frankly, that people can't answer that question. And it says a great deal about the politicians, you know, who can't answer a simple question truthfully mm -hmm. because whether because they're scared or whether they genuinely buy into the sort of gender ideology rubbish. I mean, Rakeem, one problem for Keir Starmer is that his personal ratings are sort of behind the Labour Party. And often when there are sort of focus groups done, Keir Starmer loves a focus group, we know, but people will say, you know, when people are asked to say what words they associate with Keir, they will say things like dull, boring, um, uninteresting, no vision, that, that kind of thing. I mean, that's, you know, no one's flocking to Keir Starmer's arms, are they? No, and I think it's interesting that I I think uh, Rishi Sunak received a great deal of criticism for the results from the right of his party. I actually think that Sunak is the only thing that's really preventing the Tories of having, you know, in terms of getting an absolute hammering in the next general election. If truth be told, if you quite if you look at the polling, quite often Sunak's personal ratings are above that of his party, and in some uh, cases, it's the reverse of that when it comes to the Labour Party and Sir Keir Starmer. I, I think that he's yet to truly articulate an uplifting vision um, for, for what Britain could be under a Labour government. Now, of course, he has to focus on the cost of living crisis. I think that that, that that has to be his priority. But there has to be also you have to provide that degree of optimism to say it's not always going to be like this that when we tackle the cost of living crisis, there are better times ahead. So I think at the moment that, that that's the problem. I think that if all you're offering is doom and gloom, you are naturally going to perceive to be a quite dull, uninspiring character. Now, that's not to say that you should have your head in the clouds and be uh, unreasonably positive. I think that Boris Johnson at times fell into that category. <laughs> but I think that I think many British voters would appreciate... Uh, it's, it's, it's a, a, a more of the sort of big picture stuff from Sikir Starmer. And at the moment, I don't think they've received much of that. I think that, uh, talking about that kind of big picture stuff, the, the idea of you know having values or an ideology, that seems to be the problem for actually both Keir and mm -hmm. Sunak. You know, they are both kind of two technocrats, mm -hmm. essentially, you know, fighting over the centre ground, not saying much, um, not promising very much, delivering even less 
Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's exactly right, and I think this would be a, a very different con- contest between these two leaders of the two main parties if it wasn't for as I say, this the sort of um, suicide mission that the Tory party has been on for some time, as <laughs> yeah. far as it's kind of roundabout of leaders and so on. It'd be a very different kind of proposition if you just had these two kind of competing um, flavours of Blumange um, in, on a slightly more equal footing without all of that baggage yeah. already being kind of um, built up for Sunak in particular. But I think it's also a reminder that um, Keir Starmer is essentially trying to win the next election by default. Yeah. And he's doing so... Um, well in the knowledge that the all of the shenanigans around the Tory party, all of the um, squandering of their sort of Brexit mandate, all of the infighting, all of the economic chaos that um, unfelled in response to Liz Truss's government and so on really gives him a head start yeah. in that race. But at the same time, he's he's almost trying to not say anything about the big particular issues of the day. You get the sense that some of these big culture war issues, what he'd love to happen is for the Tories to sort of legislate them away so that he can quietly never touch them again. Um, You get the sense that he doesn't have much conviction about anything in particular, his recent U-turn on tuition fees being only the sort of most recent and in some respects kind of prosaic example of the sort his ability to just sort of ping from one particular position to another. So it's particularly uninspiring, but I also think it is de- is depressing for the state of politics insofar as not only do you not have um, much competition between the two, but you also have that kind of profound cynicism of, oh, at least we'll win by default rather than even trying yeah. to carve out some kind of response to the electoral ruptures of recent years and what they meant and what they displayed that people wanted out of their politics. So it's going to be, whatever happens, it'll be interesting, but you can't help but feel that the choice that we're being presented with is as dreary as that that we were seeing back in the 2010s as well. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has made a stinging intervention in the migration debate. He has essentially called the government's illegal migration bill immoral. Tom, you've written about this. Mm. I mean, what have you made of um, the Archbishop's comments well they weren't unexpected yeah um, he has been, form i guess he has form on this i mean he hosted a debate at the end of last year on asylum policy where he similarly called it cruel i think um he came out when the rwanda scheme was first mooted as back when priti patel was home secretary he, he went as far as to call that particular scheme ungodly mm. so um channeling the fury of the almighty himself yeah. against tory migration policy in that particular instance so he's been doing this for a long time he's also got involved in various other political issues in recent years. I don't know if anyone else remembers when he suggested that politicians who ignore climate change were like people looking the other way in Nazi Germany, <laughs> uh, which he had to apologise for. So his, his tendency to kind of dispense high status opinions um, at will has been there for some time. But this is, of course, particularly galling, not least because this wasn't just a statement, this wasn't just um, comments made in an interview, but it was in the House of Lords during the um, second reading of the Illegal Migration Bill, and during which he not only condemned it, but he pledged himself to actually amend this legislation when it gets to committee stage. So it's just another reminder of what a ridiculous setup the House of Lords is, Um, the fact that you have him and the rest of the Lords spiritual, the kind of quota of... Church of England bishops who are allowed to sit there. Um, and despite the fact that they've never bothered a ballot box, they get to have be able to meddle in the in the legislating process. Um, and I think it's really important that, you know, I'm not a fan of this illegal migration bill. We've talked about it on the podcast before. We've written yeah. about it on Spikes in terms of its liberalism and its shortcomings and so on. But it's so important that we have out 
the debate on migration with our elected representatives and in public. I mean, yeah. for so long, if anything, this whole illegal migration bill and it's and the kind of adjoining Rwanda policy has just shown us how, particularly on migration policy, I think it's fair to say, the debate has been dominated and policy has been shaped by non-democratic institutions for so long. It used to be the European Union. We've also seen the European Court of Human Rights flex its muscles recently in relation to the Rwanda scheme. We've seen the Archbishop of Canterbury get involved. We've seen yeah. King Charles get involved um, via briefings to the press last year. It's just one of those issues in which people, in which the kind of unelected bits of the establishment think that the public and their representatives can't be trusted to get on with it. And yeah. I think this is another example of that. And, and Rakeem, I mean, that distrust of the public is is unfair, isn't it? I mean, people aren't just a bunch of bigots who, you know, people might want to stop the boats because that's a very serious crisis happening on the channel, but they don't want to stop the planes and stop everyone from coming to Britain, do they? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an emergency on the English South Coast. Uh, that's the truth of it. Our border security regime is fundamentally broken. And I think that there's many reasons why people will be concerned over the small boats crisis. They may feel that because our asylum system is, in in, in their view, uh, oversaturated with economic migrants, um, that means that groups who actually are at genuine risk of persecution and immediate risk of violence, they're being left by the wayside. So, in, in a sense, there's a there's a there's a compassionate case. To, to, to tackle the small boats crisis, because if, if the country is preoccupied with the small boats emergency, then perhaps the asylum system is overrun to such an extent they can't prioritise uh, groups which are at genuine risk of persecution. I think that uh, Justin Welby's intervention, he, he likes making interventions uh, of this nature, but I, I think that I think the problem that we have here is that we have a series of unelected bodies, whether it's in the UK or the ECHR, the Strasbourg-based core, and they're undercutting the migration policy of a democratically elected government. And I think that many people will naturally take issue with that because they would have felt that in, in the post-Brexit world that the UK should very much be in charge of its borders and should have um, ultimate sovereignty over its asylum system. And many people understandably feel that that's not the case. And sticking with um, the Archbishop and the and the Church, um, as you alluded to, Tom, you know, he's taken a strong stance on climate change as well. He's mm-hmm. also taken a strong stance on woke issues, BLM, um, essentially endorsing a report saying that uh, artifacts or even gravestones and things like mm-hmm. that in churches um, that have any connection to colonialism need to be removed. Mm-hmm. He's got a transgender policy. All Church of England schools, um, which will be endorsed, um, should affirm the gender of um, children above the age of five. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you make this make of this kind of great awakening of the Church of England? Because it is a bit, bit of a bizarre spectacle. It's replace one religion with with another, you can yeah. say. Um, but no, it is, it is really striking. People used to talk about the Church of England as the Conservative Party at prayer. Mm. I mean, that was the watchword for it insofar as its, um, you know, its values, its political commitments, um, its natural political alliances and so on. And yet the, the ease with which um, it's been essentially captured or washed over captured always makes it sound like it was too much of a plan yeah it's like they yeah. kind of just lie down in the, <laughs> in, the, in the kind of you know atmosphere that's been created by identity politics and uh it's just striking how it doesn't matter how old-fashioned traditionalist um 
Tory and yeah. in some historically the institution is the the pull of this particular ideology is obviously quite intense um and also it shows that it comes with it uh, a desire to to meddle and to lecture mm. and to sermonize that might come more naturally to the archbishop of canterbury than it might do other leaders of other institutions. They, they are like. pious people. They are very <laughs> pious people. But um, there is a, a fascinating example of how um, yeah, the sort of new woke religion mm. has such a pull for various figures, even leaders of the um, established church in this country. I'm, I'm amazed at how well they managed to fuse the two. So you had the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, saying that the process of transitioning um, is a sacred journey to becoming whole. I mean, Ricky, what, what do you think they'd make of that kind of chatter down the local mosque in, in Luton? I don't even understand what you're talking about. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that's the truth of it. I mean, they'll just think that this is absolute nonsense, that, you know, transitioning from this to that is some kind of sacred journey. This is beyond laughable, really. I, I think that it's a real shame that the Church of England has taken um, this path. Um, if truth be told, uh, and maybe it should look at itself. We saw the latest census figures that there's been a sharp drop in the number of people in England and Wales who identify as Christian. I think that the Anglican Church has to take some responsibility uh, for that. Um, but never mind the local mosque, Fraser. I'd be very interested to talk to some socially conservative um, Anglicans of Black African origin, what they, what they would think about that, uh, yeah. the possibility that transitioning is some kind of sacred journey. Or the congregation more generally, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a point that I've made before, that actually it's those, it's, it's those new migrants, uh, you could say recently arrived, which are helping to keep uh, Christianity alive in a robust way, especially in our inner cities and home, home, uh, my hometown of Luton, um, places such as Medway and Kent, Thurrock and Essex, Swindon and Wiltshire. So I, I, I think that it, I think the country could do with the Church of England that uh, talks more about family values, um, the, 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 the reality that I think many of the problems that I do think we see in society uh, are down to, uh, or at least family breakdown is in some way responsible for um, many of those social ills. But instead, they've decided to take this, uh, th th this path of radical cultural liberalism, in, in, in my view, a, a, a desperate bid to appear fashionable and relevant. And I think that's a crying shame. And, and Tom, finally, I mean, obviously, Welby is being cheered on um, by the liberal elites for this, mm -hmm. you know, for slapping down uh, our evil government. But I mean, do you think they'd want him to intervene on questions of abortion, of uh, gay marriage, or is this a sort of fair weather alliance? <laughs> I think it's a, it's a fair weather alliance, but it is it's a, it's a useful one as far as it really demonstrates just how outrageous the sort of setup is when you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury trying to make him, his presence felt in politics <laughs> and that being cheered on. Um, it makes you realise just how ridiculous this particular situation is. And as I say, the ongoing existence of, of the House of Lords, the idea that if you're a bishop, one of those handful of hereditaries left, or just some party flunky who hung around long enough around the Labour Party that suddenly mm. you should be elevated above the heads of all of the ordinary citizens <laughs> as far as being able to take this role in um, scrutinising, but often when they really take against it, blocking yeah. legislation, it should outrage people in public life more than it actually does. You know, it's something which I think really came to the fore with Brexit. I think a lot of ordinary people in particular were shocked to the extent to which this institution could be weaponised against their will. Mm. Um, but I, I think what um, this particular hour of immigration shows is that it's not going to begin and end 
with Brexit in the kind of post-Brexit era when all of these areas of policy, which were previously kind of squirreled away in Brussels committee rooms or yeah. amongst people in Whitehall would always say one thing and do another. They're back up for public contestation now. And as um, a lot of those issues, a lot of those public debates unfurl, I think we'll see that those sections of the establishment are going to be as willing to sort of flex their muscles as they were over the Brexit process. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.